Let's turn to some of the big stories of the day. Mark Tui is here, advisor to business and political leaders. Nice to have you, sir. Good morning. Good. Good morning, John. Doug Ford says he has no regrets about using the notwithstanding clause. I guess he has to say that. Actually, he didn't have to. Uh, but I can't imagine he doesn't have regrets because when you do something and you have to take it back three days later, it's probably not your greatest political moment. No, and I think in politics, uh, it's the reputational, the image, the uh, the sort of public face that most politicians spend a lot of time thinking about. And Doug Ford is a politician. He certainly spends a lot of time thinking about that. Having said that, and I don't want to stand up here to defend uh, the government, but you know what they wanted was kids in school and negotiations to continue. What we have is kids in school and negotiations continue. So one could argue that despite the reputational slap in the face with the wet fish, uh, <laughs> they got what they wanted. Um, and I could see him doing it again. I mean, if the unions, any of the unions, uh, threatens to strike and uh, pulls the trigger on that, the government still always has that quiver, that arrow in its quiver. Uh, so we could be back into the same situation if the same foolishness uh, happens one more time. Now, I know that you have been uh, somewhat, shall we say, reserved, to put it lightly, about a lot of the measures during the COVID pandemic. Uh, so here's what Doug Ford said about the idea of getting back to mask mandates. And we're not just talking about mandatory masking in schools, which is on the table, but apparently the recommendation now is masking in all indoor places. Here we go. I've always said from day one, I'll always listen to Dr. Moore's advice and the advice he's giving everyone. I'll give them the same thing. You know, I'd wear a mask when you can. If you're, uh, you know, you're within risk. Um, and and get your get your flu shot. You know, okay. Um, I mean, my heart sinks at the idea of going back to masking, but if it's an effective thing and we can avoid shutdowns, then I'd, I'd be the first guy to throw the mask back on. Yeah, but I think the challenge from the government's perspective, and they're trying to they're trying to stuff the floss back in the little uh, dental floss container uh, <laughs> by getting themselves out of the trouble that they got into last time. They decided to take advice on a very narrow range of of uh, questions and apply it to governance as a whole, and that was the problem during COVID. Yeah, I have no doubt that if you put uh, anything in front of your mouth, it will catch some of the spit coming out of it. It will impede things coming out. We know that. But we also know that there are a whole lot of other risks and factors that people deal with every single day. And we know that masks impede learning. We know that masks impede, uh, you know, it's, it's in the lack of learning impede student development. There are downsides to these. But when you ask a virologist or an emergency room physician, is masking a good thing? Of course, they're going to say yes, because they're looking at at the sick person in front of them, and might it have made a difference? Maybe. One in a million, perhaps. One in a thousand, perhaps. One in a hundred, uh, perhaps. But any you know, improvement or any benefit, they would support. And we then extrapolated that advice across an entire society where there are other things that harm people. And so, you know, I understand where, you know, politically again, Doug Ford is saying, hey, don't uh, blame me if we go back to this. This will be the medical advice. The problem is the doctors were never trained to run the province. The doctors were never trained to run the country. 
the ultimately, that's what we elect politicians for. So he might lean on that advice, as well he should, but he needs to take a broader array of advice from other people as well. And then ultimately, the buck stops with him and his government. They have to make the decision. Justin Trudeau's on an international trip, so he's going to miss the national commemoration at the Cenotaph in Ottawa for Remembrance Day. Previous prime ministers have done the same. Uh, but of course, this will be represented as Justin Trudeau skipping out on commemorating our veterans. As somebody who served in uniform, what do you say? Uh, I think uh, it is him skipping out on our veterans, but you know the question is not that. The question is, what is he doing instead, and is it a more valuable use of his time? And I think the case, uh, the jury is out on that. I mean, the particular conference in Cambodia that he'll be at instead of being at the National War Memorial is the uh, Association of Southeast Asian Nations. Is Canada a pivotal player in that whose absence would be missed? No. Um, what I think this smacks of to me, John, is uh, I'm old enough to remember his father's uh, uh, tenure as prime minister, and I remember the last years of his uh, prime minister. Pierre Elliott Trudeau really lost interest in Canada. He got bored with governing and he was much more interested in international diplomacy and statesmanship, something he was not particularly good at, but he spent most of his time traveling around the world, you know, posing for pictures and uh, having fun, quite frankly, trying to uh, be the international statesman. I'm starting to see that in Justin. And so I'm not sure that it's really worth Canadians' time to have their prime minister traveling around the world to some of these. Now, they gang them together. Some of the other conferences, more important. Uh, meanwhile, we, we learned yesterday at the inquiry into the Declaration of the Emergencies Act that there was a pastor who delivered a sermon to uh, convoy protesters in Alberta, effectively saying they should be willing to die for their freedom. That's a bit too William Wallace for my sensibilities. I, I think maybe you could say that the protest was worthy. Do we have the audio of that? Okay, Nick, go. In my country, in 1980, finally, they said our children are worth fighting for. And it did it. And they took it to the streets and they paralyzed the entire system. Yes, houses were arrested. There is a prize attached to freedom. How do you think the second war ended? Millions had to die. How do you think the first war ended? Millions had to die. And that's the price that we have to be willing to pay if our children are going to have a free and democratic society. All right. Perhaps a little over the top, but what do you say? Uh, I don't... I, it's sort of two points. One, the power of rhetoric, the power of oratory. Will, uh, you know, uh, Winston Churchill said much the same thing in order to get the British to keep fighting, in order to get the Americans to join the fight, in order to beat Hitler. Uh, you know, Hitler had the same ability to motivate people to do things that they clearly knew intellectually were absolutely wrong, but they got swept up in the moment. So the power of oratory is you know, phenomenally important. The second point is, if we don't stand up for the little freedoms, and sometimes we're going to be wrong, but if we don't stand up for the little ones, we eventually lose the big ones. You know, in China, they locked people up in their apartments, still are doing that to fight uh, COVID. If they... Sorry, that's me. Go ahead. Years ago. <laughs> Uh, you know, if the Chinese had fought harder for their petty freedoms a hundred years ago, maybe they'd still have some freedom left to fight for today. They didn't. They don't. 
I think it was a fair response for most of the COVID, uh, you know, infringements, but they absolutely were infringements on freedoms. And so I'm very happy that somebody stood up to at least point that out and to protest it. And the rest of us can then judge. Thank you, sir. Good to have you. <laughs> there you go. We're all going to show our bums.